Well, it's great to be with you on this Sunday service and here for our last session at the retreat together. I think one of the highlights for me uh, really has been to sing together with the saints, uh, to sing as one voice and to hear the voices together uh, has been such an encouragement to me. And thank you so much for all of your love and encouragement to me and my wife. And uh, we're very grateful for this experience here to be with you. So for our last time, if you um, have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. And this is the reading of God's holy and living word. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working on each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded here on this Lord's Day of your death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who by his death and through the cross, Lord, created the one new man. You abolished the wall of hostility. You abolished all the differences between men and women and culture and races, but you brought together one new man, the body of Christ, the new creation, the church. And we thank you, Lord, for this new creation that we together can stand together as the body of Christ. And we thank you for teaching us and challenging us so much about what the body means and the implications of it. We continue to pray, O Lord, that as you have sent your Holy Spirit as uh, gifts amongst the church, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would enlighten now the eyes of our heart so that we would understand the grand purpose of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we've now come to our last session in God's great call for the church to be one as He is one. We saw in our first session that our great call is to maintain the unity of the Spirit because it is based and rooted in the Holy Trinity. We saw last night that amidst unity, there is beautiful diversity. Each of us has been given a gift to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. But to what goal does it all aim? To what destination? To what purpose? Paul says right here in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is a great statement, friends. Did you notice it carefully? 
I wonder if you've caught the full impact of it because what the Apostle Paul is telling us is the end, the aim, the goal of all of God's wise, sovereign plan for us. What is God doing? What is he after? Well, I'll tell you today what he is not after. God's ultimate goal for the church is not for the evangelization of the world. I know the Great Commission is in the Bible to go and make disciples of all nations, right? I believe in it fully. I know that this command is repeated with various uh, variations of each of the four Gospels. I know evangelism is greatly neglected and there are yet unreached people groups in our world without the Gospel in their own language. Yet is this the church's grand purpose? It isn't a very important function, but it is not the supreme aim, not the final destination. Others think of the church as a social enterprise to reach the world. They remember that Jesus spoke of feeding the hungry, giving the thirsty, drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick as a basis for entrance in the kingdom of God. Now, people who make this emphasis of their church believes that the church exists for social injustice. Their aim is for the church to be a sort of social agency providing relief to those and help those who are less fortunate. But is this the church's essential reason for existence? Is this the greatest purpose for God's people? Important, yes. Greatest purpose, not quite. There are still others who believe that the church's ultimate purpose is to be a place of rest, a retreat from the world. Because in a sin-filled world with sufferings and trials of all different kinds, where people are beaten and battered with life, they view the church primarily as a hospital. It's a place where those who are sick can find a place and, and have uh, nursed their wounds and be patched up for another day. As important as that may be, is this the church's aim? Again, we would have to say important, yes, but not the essential. The supreme thing, the purpose that is above every other purpose is mature manhood. It is being what God had in mind when he, had, when he made man and woman in the first place. Romans 8.29 tells us of God's ultimate plan for us is that we would be conformed to the image of his own son, Jesus Christ. That is essentially the ultimate purpose Paul had in mind for the church in Ephesians. It's that the church, the body of Christ, might be the full-grown man and that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by growing up into all aspects into Christ, who is our head. This also coincides with God's purpose for the church that Paul mentioned. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 10, he says back in chapter 310 that the church's ultimate purpose is to radiate the glory of God. It says in 310, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. His glory is to be reflected throughout all of creation when they see the church in all its beauty and splendor as she becomes the full-grown body of Christ. God wants a church 
filled with ordinary men and women who demonstrate the character qualities of Jesus Christ. You see, keeping this ultimate goal in mind for the church will help us stay on track in our pilgrimage on this earth. Ministry is most effective when the goal is kept in plain view. It will guard us from deterring towards the latest trends and the fashions of the church. And having this goal in the front view mirror of our hearts will keep every member of the body of Christ investing his or her time, his energies, and all the abilities that are the things that are most dearest to the heart of God. So it will be helpful for us then to examine this ultimate goal of the church more fully. The ultimate goal of the church, we stated, is mature manhood, to grow into a full-grown, uh, growing in Christ. Now, Paul is not just painting this vision with broad brushes. He's actually very specific in what he intends. We can say that this maturity consists in a threefold aim. Number one, the first aim is that we will all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, it's obvious that Paul's first aim of the church is to be united, to be one, for the body of Christ cannot be divided. Paul mentioned that the seven grand unities that the church is to hold in common is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And since the church is to be rooted in the unity of the Godhead, Paul's exhortation in verse 3 is to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A unity like this can only be maintained. But you notice in verse 13, it's completely different. Paul is speaking of the goal of reaching the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God this unity is something to be attained. It's not telling us that there are two kinds of unities. There's one unity, and in one sense, it has been already accomplished through the cross, where it's already been something we have to maintain, but it's something that now is to be attained until Christ returns and he comes back. And this maturity we are aiming at to attain has two parts. Unity of the faith, and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Earlier in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul affirmed that there is but one faith. It means that there is only one objective body of truth. There is not one truth for the Jews, one gospel for the Gentiles, one group, group for this denomination. There's only one body of truth. There is only one system that reveals how sinful human beings can become acceptable to a holy God. And it is that sinners offended a holy God and they deserve the wrath of God. And it is only by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God, took the sins upon himself. And for those who repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the only way that you can have salvation. The goal of all believers is ever and always the unity of this faith. Our goal should be to agree. Now, I'll tell you, that will not happen until the whole church is gathered into the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we shall all be Southern Baptists, right? 
But while we are here, no growth towards maturity can occur without this increase in the unity of the faith through the understanding of the gospel. But this unified body of truth must also be accompanied by a unified increase of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, this knowledge of the Son of God is more than intellectual head knowledge, but this is an intimate, experiential heart knowledge, a growing relationship with the Savior. It goes beyond knowledge that is stuffed into the head. It's a knowledge that trickles down into the heart and springs out into life in obedience and loving service to the Lord. And this is how uh, attaining this unity looks like. The more all believers strive to know Jesus Christ, the more they will agree with each other. You see, when our primary focus and our attention becomes on the horizontal relationship, we are often met with a lot of frustration, right? Because as sinners, there are new areas of difference that keep appearing and sin tends to divide us. But when our focus is getting to know Christ better, our differences with one another begins to fade. Our mutual, unified knowledge of Christ and love for Him is what draws us and unites us together. This is the kind of reality that transcends all denominations, all barriers, all culture and races. This is the goal for Pillar Baptist Church, to know Christ. And when that becomes our primary focus in life, we'll draw closer to, one, to each other as one. Now here's the second aim, to a mature man. Now some interpret this goal of the individual growing in maturity in Christ, certainly a New Testament teaching, we'd have to say. But here, the context demands that we understand it corporately. Now, Paul here uses a singular, singular word for a full-grown male, and he is referring back in chapter 215 to the one new man in which the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles reconciled to Christ and to one another as the one new man. He's thinking, he's thinking of the mature man corporately. And to the oneness and to the newness of this man, Paul now adds, Matureness. It means reaching the full goal of growth, a full-grown, fully developed man. This is then is the aim of the church, that we would grow into maturity as a corporate body. This goes far beyond our individualistic goals of maturity in Christ. You know, if you're personally growing in maturity in Christ while leaving others in the dust, you're failing in your purpose in life. God's purpose for you is beyond your individual life. We must grow in a maturity individually, but we must always do so with a view to the whole body attaining to the mature man. We must minister to one another, encourage and edify the weaker parts of the body, bring them along so that the whole body of Christ comes to maturity. What, what does this full-grown maturity of the church look like? Is it that become, we become satisfied with a robust, full-fledged program? Is it that we become so well, have a well-organized structure of the church? Is it when we have the greatest praise bands and ministries to fill, fulfill every need of the church? 
Or is it when we finally get our own church building and people are filling the pews? Far from it. Here is the proper standard for measuring maturity. And it's the third aim of the church. A mature man that grows into the fullness of Jesus Christ himself. The maturity of this growth is measured by nothing less than Christ's full stature. Do you realize that right in this text, Jesus Christ is the mature man, full grown in stature? That's the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to be the body of this full grown man, Jesus Christ. Only we are still in the process of being built. But that is our aim, that is our goal. Now, this expression here, which belongs to the fullness of Christ, means all that Christ is in his humanity with all of the graces and qualities he possesses. And uh, Christ is a full-grown man. And God is aiming in producing his people, the character of his son, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his humility, his unselfishness, his servant attitude, his willingness to suffer wrongly, his forgiveness of sins, and so much more that is characterized of his life on this earth. And so, beloved, there is no higher calling for the church than to keep moving toward that goal. And this threefold purpose must be the purpose of our church. Cannot settle for anything less than to attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is what our future holds for us. That is the goal where we will one day arrive, but we have not yet arrived, and much has to take place before we get there. And so the words in verse 14, as a result, or so that, suggest this contrast between what we are and what we shall be. The Apostle Paul knows that we have not yet arrived. And so in his pastoral, apostolic wisdom, he doesn't merely just state the goal and he says, get there somehow, you know. No, he, he helps us to get there. And he deals with us where we are, not where we should be. A very good principle for good teaching. So the Apostle Paul now gives us two practical means in growing towards that full maturity, one negative and the other positive. What we are not to be like and what we are to be like. He puts it negatively first in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, I think that this opening statement that we are no longer to be, no longer to be children is extremely important and is very revealing. God tells us to be childlike not childish. There's a world of difference between the two. As Christians, we know that we all start out as children. Since we are a new creation in Christ, the Christian life is not a continuation of the old. It is a beginning of a new life. Peter points this out when he refers to new believers in 1 Peter 2.2 2 as newborn babes, right? And then he tells us to long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow by it in respect to salvation. We all begin as infants, but we are expected to grow into maturity 
by the feeding of God's word. And let me tell you, there's nothing really more tragic to see than to see Christians who began and who remain exactly where they are. They end as children as they began. This is not only detrimental to your individual growth in Christ, but also destructive in the goal of maturity as the church. This is why Paul says that as a result, he says, we are no longer to be children. Now, I want to point to you, there's some tendencies in children that are very comparable to childish behavior. Let me point you to a couple. Number one, uh, children, their range of life is very selfish. I, me, mine, right? Uh, This is seen if you see uh, two children playing together in the same room, and then the third child comes in. And here's a child over here who's got about six toys. There's a child over there who has about seven or eight toys. And then another child, a little boy comes in, and he just has one little toy. And both of those kids, right, they all want that toy that he's got. It's very characteristic of children. They're selfish. That is true of immature Christians. They are interested in my blessing, the things that help me. Or I'm not helped by this. I'm not benefited by this. They're only concerned about themselves, my blessing, my interest. They don't think about the whole body of Christ. The result is disastrous. Another thing that's true of children is that is their lack of proportion. This results in a tendency to dispute about the trifles and neglect the weightier matters. This is very true of things in the spiritual life. You'll find baby Christians who don't have a sense of proportion about what is important in the Christian faith and what is unimportant. So they get all hung up about, about, oh, women can't be pastors or something like that, but neglect the weightier matters of sanctification by the Holy Spirit. There's another thing that children are like, their lack of stability. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, children are uh, notoriously fickle. Their attention span is very short. You cannot interest them in one thing very long because they quickly turn to something else. You know, when I was a child, I remember one of the cool things to have that I had in my home was a pogo stick. And I used to love, love doing that. But I got bored of it. And then I remember a new toy called Skip It came around. You guys remember that one? Oh, you put one foot through a hoop, it's attached to a plastic ball, and you go, skip it, skip it. You know, the 13 degrees. You know what I'm talking about, right? I play with it with my sisters all the time. But then I realized it was kind of girly. So I got myself a boyish toy, a wrestling buddy. You remember the Hulk Hogan buddy? Wrestling buddy, you guys remember those? It's a pillow where I would wrestle with it. I'll pull my best WWE moves on it. Then I got bored of that. And all the hype was a super soaker, you know? And then I got into pogs and the slammers and the biggest slammer you got. I was all about that. And as children, we are caught up into these fads, and you were out of the loop if you didn't have any of these toys. But as adults, we're not supposed to follow every fad that comes down. But so often, we resemble the children that we are. A childish believer in Christ is unstable. 
tossed here and there, carried about by every change, changing false doctrines. This is a, a, a mark of an immature believer in Christ, whether they recently came to faith or whether they've been in the faith for a long time. I really like the New English Bible translation of this verse. It reads this way. Tossed by the waves and whirled about by every fresh gust of teaching. Such are immature Christians. They never seem to know their own mind. They never seem to come to any settled convictions. They're always running after the newest book or the newest teachers. Their opinions tend to change from the last preacher they heard or the last book they read or even the last Christian brother or sister that they talked to. They get caught up with each and new theological fact. They seem to gravitate that which is new, something novel in the Bible. They listen to the preacher who says, I've discovered something new in the Bible. They don't seem to understand that the oldest book has stood the test of time and how after 2,000 years of intense examination and reflection, there are no new discoveries to be made, but the same constant, stable understanding of the Christian faith. So when false prophets, false teachers attracts you, Christian, ask for a thus saith the Lord. Ask them to give you a chapter and a verse in the Bible for the strange teachings they are presenting to you. And if you would only do this, you would not be running after these ever-changing religious paths. Here, you have something that has stood the test for 2,000 years. It is God's own blessed word, and you can depend on it, and you must feed upon it in order for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another thing that's characteristic of children is their lack of knowledge. And because of their lack of knowledge, they are easily deceived. I mean, you can play tricks after tricks on children. I pulled one of these a couple months back to my niece, Annabelle. She's two years old. At my sister's house, there's a blue tape that separates her from going into the kitchen. She knows she's not supposed to go in the kitchen because it's dangerous with all the appliances and stuff. And uh, she knows when she gets past it, she will get, you know, in trouble. So when I was over there one time, I was playing with her, and I was standing in the kitchen, and I was like, hey, Annabelle, come here, you know? And of course, she came over, and my sister said, no, don't do that. She got in trouble. She wouldn't play with me the rest of the night. <laughs> but children are easily deceived. Uh, this, is also <laughs> this is also true for immature Christians. They are easily deceived. And just like a child, the immature Christian lacks knowledge. It lacks a standard of knowledge. And without a standard, they cannot test or evaluate anything. And so some false teaching entices them. It attracts their fleshly desires. And they have no knowledge to test if these things are so in the Bible. And without a firm conviction of the Bible and its teaching, they accept every wind of teaching that appeals to their own desires. Children, you know, tend to act very impulsively based on their feelings of the moment rather than thoughtfully and carefully. And without the true standard of God's word, immature Christians are always in great danger. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and by the trickery 
of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is Paul's graphic and very picturesque way of saying that a child is always liable to be deceived because it tends to believe everything it is told. The childish Christian false prey to any imposter that comes along. Notice how these false teachers are cunning. They're crafty in deceitful scheming. They make their false teaching sound so right and so appealing. And these false teachings vary from generation to generation, but they always assault the pure word of God's truth. Jesus warned about this. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, in Paul's final meeting with the Ephesian elders, he warned them in Acts chapter 20, 29 to 30, that I know, he said, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. What a frightening warning. The New Testament is replete of all of these warnings of false prophets and trickery of men. And in our text, Paul warns about the trickery of men and craftiness in deceitful scheming. All of this reminds us that Paul had in mind another source of this cunning and craftiness of deceit. Because behind all of this false teaching is the devil himself. How subtle and how cunning was the devil when he deceived Eve. He is a liar from the beginning, says our Lord, the father of all lies, who can transform himself into an angel of light. He is crafty and scheming, the same word that is used in Ephesians 6, 11, when it tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis tells us of an older demon Screw tape, writing to a younger demon, Wormwood, about how to be effective in spiritually deceiving and ruining people. And in his first letter, Screw tape said, Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together into his head. He doesn't think of doctrine as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. He says, jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. And at the very end of his first letter to young Wormwood, Screw Tape writes, best of all, give him a grand general idea that he knows it all. And that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember that you are there to fuddle him. Quite a provocative letter, isn't it? Demons know that speculations, not truths, must fill men's minds. Demons know that in order to prevent biblical truth to enter into our minds, he must make us think that we already know it all. And these jargons have poisoned our colleges, our universities, our seminaries, and even in our churches today. I mean, how else can you explain why certain churches now accept abortion as an alternative option? 
How else can you explain why, why churches are now giving in to the social pressure to ex, uh, ex, expecting or accepting homosexuality when for over 2,000 years the church as taught in God's word held marriage to be between a man and a woman? How else can you explain why churches are now moving away from the preaching and authority of God's word to little sermonettes, to Christianettes? It's because the church is willing to listen to the world, the schemes of the devil. And when we come to consider how to detect the trickery, how it's recognized, there's always one underlying characteristic of the devil's false teaching. It always takes from and it always detracts from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It always undermines and assaults God's word. It always seeks to break the fellowship of the church. In order for us to attain the unity of the faith to a mature manhood, we must no longer be children. So ask yourselves, are you moving away from childish attitudes? Are you forsaking infantile behavior? Are you an easy prey for false teaching? Are you moving away from instability and overconfidence? Are you growing from childhood to maturity? Are you growing and striving to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you testing your thoughts and your attitudes and your desires against the ultimate standard of God's word? Those are signs of maturity and ways we can attain to this goal as a church. He, he wants us to leave our elementary ways and to go on to maturity through the steady diet and study and obedience of God's word. But Paul understands that even though he warns us to no longer be children, there will still be many lingering children set on mediocrity, lazy, undisciplined in their faith, influenced by false teaching and worldly philosophy who basically need a lot of teaching and a lot of patience. And so positively, he says in verse 15, that another way in growing towards maturity is to speak the truth in love. Truth, truth, as important as it is to uphold truth, is never, never in isolation. As if we only need to bombard people with hard facts. Truth is important, but we also need to speak the truth in love. It has been well said that truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. I thank God that there are those in the churches who are determined at all costs to defend the truth and uphold God's word. But sometimes, these are the very same people who are lacking in love. It's when they think they smell a heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their mus muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters into their eye they seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. But there are others who also make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to show brotherly love. But in all their efforts to show love, they are even willing to com compromise and depart from the truth. They would rather play nice than offend anyone with hard truth. But you see, both of these tendencies in us are unbalanced and really un. Biblical. 
when a brother or sister is immature in their faith and ignorant of the truths of the Christian faith, we are not to beat down truth into their heads with an iron fist. But at the same time, we are not to be silent about the truth by soft peddling the truth in disguise of love. Beloved, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The Apostle Paul holds two together. Truth must always be wedded to love. And the best example of speaking truth and love is our Lord Jesus Christ. How did John say it in John 1.17? That grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus dined with the tax collectors and prostitutes. He showed them unconditional love to unworthy sinners. And he spoke, yet he spoke about the truth of the gospel of the kingdom for them to repent and for them to forgive, uh, for forgiveness of their sins. Other times, Jesus was very fierce with the truth, such as when he called the Pharisees hypocrites, fools, because they professed to know God when inside they were full of evil. He even confronted his own disciples fiercely with the truth, even calling the leader of the twelve Satan. But he always spoke the truth out of love, and it was because he loved them. He valued their souls so highly that he spoke so strongly against them He hates the error, but he loves them. Truth and love is all we have when we deal with the shallowness of a self-proclaimed good person. Truth and love is all we have when we come across a know-it-all Christian. Truth and love is all we have when we speak to someone who is struggling in some kind of trial in their lives. Speaking truth and love is an indispensable Um, element for the goal of maturity. But there's also another aspect to this. When it says speaking the truth in love, it literally is translated truthing in love. It's a participle, which means truthing. It carries the idea that not only are we to speak the truth, but we are also to do it. Perhaps a better way to translate this then would be to manifest, show the truth in love. I love the little story of G. Campbell Morgan's family. He had a big family. Four of the five of his sons went to be pastors. They were a family who all studied the Bible. And they were having a discussion around the dinner table one day about which translation in the Bible was the best. And Papa Morgan used the American Standard Version, and he spoke about how this was the best translation. One of his sons spoke of the English Revised Version, and he said, no, this is the best translation. And finally, one son, Howard Moody Morgan, spoke up and said, well, the translation that I like best is Mother's Translation. And what he meant by that that was this, simply Mother's Christian life and the way in which she translated the truth of God's Word into Christian living. And that's what Paul means when he says, speaking the truth in love, being so immersed in the Bible that love translates through a person's life. And this is what you and I are called to do, to manifest the truth in our life through love. And when we are no longer to be children, but manifesting truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him 
who is the head, even Christ. Paul now comes back to the ultimate goal of the church. We notice again the corporate emphasis, we, the body of Christ, must grow in relation to its head. It tells us that Christ is the end and the object of the growth of the members. In other words, Paul is saying that every part of the body should be worthy of the head. The head is the pattern and the standard. And every part of the body, even the smallest parts, should grow in proportion to the head. We are not to be like those gym meatheads, you know? Disgustingly huge on top, but walking around in chicken legs. <laughs> Our whole bodies in every part should be perfectly proportioned and balanced, growing together in all aspects. That means in every way, in faith, in knowledge, especially in love, so that we will grow into Christ. Christ's goal of his body is not to be like a gym meathead, disproportionate, but to be perfectly symmetrical, delightful proportion and beauty. And Paul is quick to remind us that Christ is the head, not only as the object and the standard of our spiritual growth, into him, it tells us, but he is also the source of our growth. He says in verse 16, he is the one from whom the whole body receives its life and its nourishment. He is the source of all of her life, her energy, her growth. The spirit of God flows through Christ into the whole of the church, permeating every part of his wonderful body. And apart from Christ, there is no church. There is no power. And so never forget this simple, simple fact. Not a step heavenward. Not the smallest degree of growth and maturity. Not in the least likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ can happen apart from the head uh, who is our Lord. This is very important for us to know because we have been given a very important part and contribution to the body. When Paul adds in verse 16, according to the proper working of each individual part, he reminds us of what he said back in verse 7, that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every person in the body of Christ has a significant task to perform. And every person has been gifted by the Holy Spirit with an endless supply from Christ to perform the role God has given to do. And if even one Christian fails to develop spiritually, the church as a whole is not as strong as it ought to be. If even one Christian doesn't contribute to the body, the body doesn't function properly. That means, friends, the body loses something if you don't function. The body is weakened if you are not growing in your relationship to the Lord and with one another. The body is paralyzed when you don't participate in giving yourself to one another. But when each of us and every one of us exercise our gifts in love to one another and in the power of Christ, we will experience the divine fullness of his body and will further cause the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That is the goal of the church. That is what we're aiming at, to grow to maturity to the measure of the stature of Christ. And when that goal is ultimately reached, and the body of Christ has grown up 
sufficiently to match the head in Christ, it's then we will see the full-grown man in all its splendor, Jesus Christ together with his body. The finality of that goal will not appear until that day when we will be glorified together with him. But the expectation of that day must be the driving motivation for us to reach that goal in the present time. That must be the goal kept in mind in every Sunday meeting we meet together, every Thursday meeting we meet together, every membership meeting that the body of Christ will be more like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. His body is not in heaven. He's left his body on earth to show him forth. And that's the reason the church is called the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit would love to duplicate the Lord Jesus Christ as much as possible for those who are named by him. So may I close our time with a very simple little story. Uh, in St. Peter's Church in Germany, there are two pictures of the crucifixion of the Apostle Peter. That's tradition, of course. We don't know if it's really true or not. But these two pictures stand side by side in that cathedral. And the existence of two pictures can be explained in this way. In the beginning of the 19th century, when Napoleon came through and took the original of the crucifixion of Peter back to France with him, he robbed the cathedral of one of its greatest treasures. And so while the first picture was taken away from the city, the artist was asked to paint a duplicate. And so he did. He painted a duplicate. And he painted it from memory. And then the original was restored to the church after Napoleon's loss of his power. And then the two pictures were compared. And those who looked at the two pictures said that there was so little difference between them that you couldn't tell which was the original and which was the copy. And beloved, that is what the Holy Spirit would like to do in the life of believers. He would like us to form us to be like Christ. And not only does the Holy Spirit like to do that, but he has already accomplished it, though we are still a working project. And it's as we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit within us that we will be more like him together and will become the true representation of the body of Christ. Our goal and the goal of the church must be the same as of God, as expressed by Paul in Ephesians 4. The goal is mature manhood in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we await the day when we will see Lord, your son, Jesus Christ, face to face, and where we will be like him. Father, it staggers our mind to think of this great calling you have given us and this purpose in mind that when we see you face to face, we will be your body. and We are your body. And the full grown man in its perfection will be seen, Lord, throughout the whole world and all of creation. Father, we know we have not arrived there as a church, but Lord, I ask that you would uh, make that purpose oh, so deeply embedded into our hearts and our minds so that as we meet together Sunday after Sunday, Thursday, Lord, with every meeting we meet together with our brothers and sisters, Lord, with this view in mind, we will strive together to be mature manhood, Lord, to be the body of Christ. Father, help us to, uh, Lord, 
no longer be children. Help us to uh, watch out for the trickery of men and deceitful scheming. Help us to continue to grow in our own knowledge of Jesus Christ and help one another get there. And Lord, while we are here on this earth with so much sin happening in our lives, help us to speak the truth in love, always manifesting truth in love to one another. Father, so that we may grow up into Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that you have made this possible. We thank you that, Christ, you are our head and you are the source of all our growth. We love you so much. Help us to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray.